Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. We'll read verses 14 and 16 to close out the chapter itself. Hear the word of the Lord. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that as we come before your holy throne, that indeed you would heed our requests, that you would grant us grace and mercy through the name of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us to understand um, his great work in our behalf, certainly his sacrifice, but also his ongoing work of intercession and his advocacy for us. Lord, help us to live and, and breathe in union with Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Since one of my daughters is having to read uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter for class this year, I decided to read it again some 30-some years later after my original reading of it. And I'm glad to say that I understood it a lot better the second time around. Uh, quite a few bigger words in there when you're in, in uh, early high school years. Uh, but I'm also glad to say that I understood a little bit more of the, the context of it as well, uh, having studied a lot of uh, Puritan uh, background and, and certainly understanding the nature of my own heart, the darkness of my own heart, uh, being able to relate to what Nathaniel Hawthorne is trying to point out. As you might already know, he's not a big fan of Puritans, even though he descended from them. Um, but uh, he's constantly pointing out the depravity of man in his writings. And you see that pretty clearly. If you're not familiar with the story itself, Hester Prynne is the, one of the main characters in the book, and she is accused of adultery. In fact, she's discovered with a child, even though her husband's been out of town for years. So she has no excuse. She admits her sin, and as a part of her punishment, she's forced to wear the scarlet letter A for adultery uh, to continue to show her sense of shame before the townspeople. And as they see her, they're condemning her for her sin again and again and again. Her only reprieve is the fact that she can, uh, she lives on the outskirts of town in a small cottage and doesn't have to go into town all the time. But when she does, immediately she senses their condemnation. Uh, when she walks down the street, the women uh, start talking in hushed tones and the children start pointing fingers and saying, there's that sinful woman. And even when she would dare to approach the church, the clergyman would use her as an example of the sermon while she was there of her depravity, hindering her in any way from enjoying fellowship with God in his church. Can you imagine such a thing? Um, well, today, uh, it's not like that at all, but back then, it, it was, that was a reality. In colonial New England, uh, you have many men and women who had committed adultery, other heinous sins during that time. They didn't merely wear a badge on their clothing, but they literally took a hot iron and seared them in the flesh permanently for their 
shameful sins, and the crowds would purposely shame them as, as well, showing the disapproval of God. If you were reading along in the devotional readings this week in Job chapter 30, we see an example of even that in Job's life. If you remember, he's sitting there and he's describing how he has become a laughingstock in town. Everyone is using him as a butt of the jokes, even using him as a, as a byword, singing songs about his great sin and his suffering. Some were even walking by and spitting in his face to shame him because they assumed that he had committed some sin, some secret sin that he had not revealed. We have a hard time understanding that today at all. Our culture is quite different. Uh, we, we do not have any sense of shaming others for sin. Uh, rather, we live in a day and age in which sin is not taken seriously at all. In fact, uh, we're very proud of our sin. We boast of our sin and, and uh, encourage others who sin likewise. In fact, if we do sin in some way, the, the culture teaches us to demand respect from others no matter what. And that if anyone dares to point the finger at us, immediately we lose our temper with them. No one would dare come out and say, you sinned, you need to repent, like they did back then. But in the context of what we're reading today in Hebrews, it, it helps us to understand this concept a little bit in, in regard of our need for a high priest, a, a great high priest. The author of Hebrews is pointing out for us uh, the need for a priest, but only in the context of the weightiness of our sin, the vileness of our sin, the guilt and shame of our sin. If we don't have any understanding of those things, we won't have any desire for a high priest that is being pointed out to us this week in our text. Two weeks ago, we talked about the incomparable Word of God, and its purpose, uh, one of its many purposes, is to expose our sin, to literally make us naked and ashamed of our sin before its holy word. And the, the, the writer of Hebrews uses a word to convey that in the Greek, where literally it means to take someone by the throat. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, where when someone was accused of a heinous crime and was about to be executed, they literally would put a knife up to his throat and make him look at the audience that he could not turn away in shame. The word of God purposely will bring us to that point of guilt and shame so that we have to face it but not because he just wants to punish us. It's not punitive. It's always to drive us to Christ for relief, to drive us to Christ for salvation, to drive us to Christ to know his mercy. So the work of the Holy Spirit as we're reading God's holy word is to bring us to the sense of guilt and shame because of our sin so that we can come to Christ as our high priest for the forgiveness of our sins. That's one of the main purposes of the law of God. Now, for those men and women in the church that were coming from a Jewish background during the time that this letter was written to the Hebrews, uh, if you remember, they're wanting to go back to Judaism. They're wanting to go back to a earthly priesthood. They're wanting to go back to the lineage of the Levites, of, of Aaron, and, and they were used to uh, all the the liturgy and, 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 and the, the, the process that went along with that, it's, it's, it's very similar, in fact, uh, since I've been a Presbyterian minister. We've, we've always had a few Catholics that have come and gone at different churches I've been in. And uh, there are always some that will stay 
and become one of us. And the others that will leave, and the reason why they leave is because they're so used to uh, the Eucharist. They're so used to uh, the confession, giving confession before the priest, and they have such a hard time transitioning to seeing Jesus as their priest. They're so used to the earthly priest, and they cannot quite make sense of these things, and so they go back uh, to the Catholic Church for that earthly sense of the priest. It's in that similar way that these believers in the church that, is, uh, that this letter is being written to, they're wanting to go back to an earthly priest because they can't see Jesus as their priest, because they can't touch him, they can't feel him. And so the writer of Hebrews is once again telling them to hold fast to their confession of faith in Christ without wavering, because if, if they do waver, if they walk away from Christ, they're walking away from the living God. If they walk away from Christ, they lose any hope of salvation at all. So in our text this morning, the writer is seeking once again to show them the need for Christ as their priest because he is a better priest than the priesthood of Aaron. In fact, he points out at least three aspects that I'd like to share with you this morning in that regard of Christ's priesthood and why it's better than any of those that had come before. Twice in our text, the, the writer of Hebrews says that he tells us what we have in Christ. Notice the language twice in just these few verses. He says, we have this in Christ. We have this in Christ. Because people forget what we have in Jesus in our union with him. But uh, three things he points out, that in Christ we have, first, a great high priest. Second, we have a sinless high priest. And third, we have a sympathetic high priest. And all of those three things are needed to go together in order to grant us access to God's holy throne. So let's look at the first one. In Christ, we have a great High priest, if you haven't noticed yet the big banner out in the foyer that I was so proud about for a week or two, the theme of the sermon series is Christ is greater, Jesus is greater, greater than anything, anyone that came before, and it's constantly pointing us to that fact. The first two chapters, the first chapter is about Jesus being greater than the angels, and then it merges into a second theme of Jesus being greater than Moses, and then it merges into the theme of Jesus being greater than Joshua. And now from here on till the, till the end of chapter 9, the main point of the author, in fact, the main point of the book is that Jesus is greater than Aaron, that Jesus' priesthood is greater than anything that was offered in the Old Testament, in the temple, and in, in anything related to it. Jesus is greater. And so the, the priesthood of Christ, it's, it's been alluded to already, uh, three times already, in, in the first few chapters. In chapter 1, verse 3, we're told that Jesus made purification for sins, which is something that only a priest can do. And then in chapter 2, verse 17, we're told that Christ is a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And we explained that that word propitiation means that he appeased the hot anger of God by his sacrifice for sin. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, we were exhorted to consider Jesus the high priest of our confession, but now he's going to unpack that and continue to show us detail by detail exactly who is this high priest that we have in Jesus. As, as many of you know, Aaron was the only high priest during the 40 years and the time in the wilderness, but he wasn't the only priest. There were others as well that also served in the tabernacle, 
and they would uh, do various works uh, in ministering before the Lord. But Aaron was the only one who could go behind the veil. He was the only one who could move from the holy place into the most holy place. And as you know, as we read earlier, he can only do that one day out of the year on the Day of Atonement. But when he came, he only came at God's beck and call. He would go behind that curtain. So the, the language is he passed through the curtain in order to sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat, in order that God's people might know the mercy of God. But he could only do that once a year. Then in comparison, what our author is pointing out to us, that if Aaron is considered to be a high priest, sometimes he was also called a great priest or a high priest, but now Jesus is called the great high priest. He outranks anything that Aaron had in the Old Testament, primarily because even though Aaron passed through the veil once a year to make a sacrifice, Jesus passes through the heavens, not just once, but there to stay at the right hand of God forever. He so far outranks Aaron in anything that could be offered through his priesthood because Aaron only enters into the replica of God's most holy room, his the throne room, if you will. And Jesus goes into the reality of where the Father is sitting on his throne. Again, Aaron continually stood in the service of the Lord in the tabernacle, but Jesus sits down in God's presence, no longer having to work. He's completed the work that Aaron could never finish. Aaron was offering sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Jesus goes in one time, offers his own blood as a sacrifice, and then he sits down in the presence of God. In the same way, we see that the veil of the temple is torn in two when Jesus dies on the cross to show that not only has he entered into the holy throne room of God, but now he's giving us access by ripping it from the top to the bottom. Now we have access through Christ to go into the very throne room of God. Now why in the world would we ever want to look for a human priest ever again? He cannot offer us that. He cannot be our mediator in any sense in that way whatsoever. That's why I'm not your priest. I'm a teacher. I'm a pastor. I point you to the high priest. He is the only one that can grant you access before God's holy throne. Why would we ever be tempted to go back to the old ways, to the old priesthood? He is our great high priest. But then in addition to that, not only is he a great high priest, he's also a, a sinless high priest. Again, as we read earlier, every time Aaron goes into the tabernacle, before he can make a sacrifice on behalf of God's people, he has to make a sacrifice for himself. Every single time. He has to have a, a guilt offering for himself, a, a burnt offering for himself, and especially on the Day of Atonement. He has to be very careful not to do what God tells him not to do, or else he'd die. Uh, later on, uh, I think many of you are familiar with the tradition. I don't, I don't know if it's true. I doubt that it is. Um, but basically they said later on, after Aaron, some years later, that uh, people became concerned that the high priest wasn't worthy enough. He wasn't uh, perfect enough to go into the holy, most holy place. And so uh, they said that they would tie a rope around his ankle and that they would um, put bells on it as well. And 
And so he would walk into behind the veil into the holy throne room of God where the Ark of the Covenant is considered his throne. And as long as they heard the bells ringing slightly, everything was fine. If the bells stopped ringing, they became concerned. If the bells made a really loud clanging noise, he was dead. And of course, uh, in order for this to work, if it worked, uh, they would literally, the, another priest could not be in anywhere inside the tabernacle, would have to have a long rope and pull him out so that he also would not die by going back there behind the veil. Again, we don't have any evidence of this in Scripture. We don't know if it's ever happened. But we do know that Aaron and his descendants constantly had to deal with their own sin before they could even touch the sin of God's people. We see a great example of that in Zechariah chapter 3. Very unusual passage where we see sort of a crossroads between heaven and earth. Zechariah is standing before the angel of the Lord, and right next to him is Satan accusing him of sin. As the high priest, he's accusing the most pure person in Israel of sin. And Joshua, of course, is completely silent. He has his hand over his mouth while the devil is pointing at him and pointing at his filthy rags. And it's actually the Lord himself who rebukes Satan and assures the high priest that he has taken away his sin in order that he might minister on his behalf to God's people. So he proves that by giving him uh, new garments, giving him a new turban to show that he's been cleansed, but then again confirms that he needs to walk in the ways of God and, and to walk properly uh, and with introspection before the Lord. But then he also gives him a promise, and this is key to Zechariah. He promises him that the Lord will eventually send his servant who will be a greater high priest than he, who will take out all the iniquity of the land in a single day. It will all be wiped out when this one, this great high priest comes in and offers a greater sacrifice. Obviously, we know that to be Christ, the sinless high priest. For unlike Aaron and his sons, Jesus is the only high priest who is free from every stain, every blemish, every sin. Uh, Leviticus chapter 21, the sons of Aaron were told to be very careful not to allow any of their lineage to go in there who had any imperfections in their body. Not alone sin, but even imperfections. So if anyone had any blemish on their body, they could not serve in, in God's temple. If they had any uh, sense of blindness or lameness, they could not serve in God's temple. Uh, it says even if a man was a hunchback or a dwarf, he could not serve in God's temple because he needed to represent some aspect of God's perfections. And if he was physically imperfect, he could not enter into God's sanctuary without profaning it. Now, what we have in Christ is a perfect high priest whom Satan cannot accuse. And that's absolutely essential for us to be able to enter into the holy presence of God. We have to have a high priest who cannot be accused. For us to come before the Lord's holy throne in the holy of holies in heaven, we have to overcome his accusations. And the only way we can do that is if he's not pointing at us, but he's pointing at Christ. Because if he points at us, he's just going to say, shame, shame, you sinner. You're worthy of all of God's condemnation. But the beauty of having a high priest, having an advocate in our place, the one who speaks for us, is he stands before us. So that Satan can't look at us and point at our sin. He can only point to Christ, and he can't find sin in him. 
So then we freely can come before the Lord without that sense of condemnation. Again, we'll sing it later on today, before the throne of God above. Listen to the words. He says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, he's pointing at my sin. Upward I look and I see Christ there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied. Why? Because he's looking at him as he pardons me. I have access to God's holy throne because I have a priest who is being examined instead of me. And he passes the test, we see. What we have in Christ Jesus is a sinless high priest who has passed through the heavens, who now sits at the right hand of God and assures that we have an audience with God. Assures that we can come right into the Holy of Holies and speak directly with God, no longer being rebuked because of our sin, no longer having the finger pointed at us because of our rotten and filthy garments, because he takes those garments off of us and replaces them with the righteous robes of Christ. Again, as we sang earlier, Charles Wesley's hymn, Arise, My Soul, Arise, he says, Arise, O my soul, arise, shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety, my assurance stands because my name is written on his hands. When he goes before the Father, my name is written on him. Sort of like, you remember those 12 stones that the high priest would wear on his chest? You know the 12 stones represented God's people, the Israelites. When Christ is interceding on our behalf, he has our name imprinted on his hands. He's saying, I'm coming on behalf of these people. And because of my righteousness, they're to be received. But without that, without Christ's priestly intercession, without his sinless intercession, God would not listen to our request at all. He would not receive us at all. He would not hear our prayers at all. It's, it's only because Christ comes in our place that now the, even the chief of sinners, even the, the person who has sinned greater than anyone else in this room, has free access to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Indeed, Christ is a friend of sinners. He's a high priest for sinners, a savior for sinners. He's passed through the veil to usher us into the presence of God. Praise God that in Christ Jesus, we have a great high priest, a sinless high priest who ushers us into God's presence. But then third, in Christ Jesus, we also have a sympathetic high priest, which is even more important. It's interesting, in ancient times, the Stoics believed that uh, the primary attribute of God was, the, was his apatheia. In other words, he, he had no feelings. And, and they, they believed that because they believed if somehow God were subjected to feelings as we are, then he could not act according to wisdom, that he would be just as erratic as we are, in that sense. So they taught that God had no feelings at all, but part of the very purpose for the incarnation of Christ is so that the Son of God can enter into the whole gamut of the human experience. He's not this aloof Savior. He comes, He condescends, He dwells amongst us to enter fully into our experience. He takes on flesh in order to learn as we learn. 
in order to grow as we grow, in order to learn to love as we love, and even to feel as we feel. In order to be a faithful high priest, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every way. But would he be sympathetic to us? Would he be sympathetic to our plight, given the fact that he was sinless? Just because he knows what it feels to be human, he doesn't know what it feels to sin. Would he be sympathetic with us in that regard? If you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, you remember the first two people that find the, uh, the guy who was robbed on the way to Jericho? It's a priest and a Levite. Neither of them sympathetic. They see him in the road, they see his blood, and they walk on the other side of the road. It's the Samaritan that actually ends up helping them. It's the same way. If you remember when, you remember poor Hannah, uh, she's childless, she's full of grief, she's full of anguish, she's praying her heart out to God. And Eli is sitting there watching her and assumes that she's a worthless, drunken woman and accuses her of that. And she's trying to plead her case before God. She has such an unsympathetic high priest that he cannot help her. He condemns her instead. He assumes that she's worthless. Again, going back to the scarlet letter, the only minister that gives Hester any sense of sympathy in the story is Pastor Dimsdale. I'm not going to tell you why completely if you haven't read it. But he has sympathy because he has shared a secret sin of his own. Listen to what it says. It says, because of his transgression, it kept him down on a level with the lowest of low. That it, that it was this very burden that gave him sympathy so intimate with the sinful brotherhood of mankind so that his heart vibrated in unison with theirs and received their pain into itself, sent its own throb of pain through a thousand other hearts in gushes of sad, persuasive eloquence in his sermons. In other words, because he knew sin so well, he could give sympathy to those who were in the throes of sin. Uh, hopefully most pastors aren't in the same situation that he's in, but every pastor is a sinner too. Every pastor knows what it is to struggle with sin. Every pastor knows what it is to hate sin and yearn to be freed from this body of death. And because of that, every pastor can give you some sympathy, you would hope, if he has any cognizance of his own sin and the darkness of his own heart. But what about Christ? He didn't sin. How could he possibly be sympathetic with us in that regard? You know, it's, it's uh, sometimes this idea of sympathy, it, it comes from that sympathetic resonance. You heard that term before? Uh, uh, it's basically the idea that uh, a note struck in one person would immediately be struck in another. Literally, it comes from uh, harmonics in music. You could have two pianos in the room, and if one is being struck on one note, if, the same, if another piano is in the same room, that same note will be struck on that one. The vibration through the air will carry it, and you will hear the note on that piano because there's a resonating sympathy between those two instruments. Something about Christ had to be made like us as if he were a piano like ours, an instrument like ours, so that when we are struck, his heart resonates with our heart. He can sympathize with it. But how can that be? if he hasn't sinned. Uh, we, we have a hard time with this concept. Uh, I, I, I mentioned a few, uh, maybe about a month ago or so in the sermon series 
that we've elevated the word empathy over the word sympathy in our culture. Uh, again, uh, we think of empathy as someone who can fully understand us because they've struggled with the same struggles that we have, and they can love us better than someone who's only sympathetic, who may not have had the same issue that we have, but yet nevertheless takes pity upon us. That works out really well on paper, but it doesn't work out so well when you're stuck in quicksand. Remember that one? It's great to have a good friend in need when you're in quicksand, but you don't want an empathetic friend because the empathetic friend has to jump in the quicksand to be with you to know how it feels. But does that help you? It can't save you. You really want a sympathetic friend who hasn't fallen in with you and yet loves you enough to hold out a stick and pull you out of the quicksand, like the priest pulling out the other priest out of the, out of the Holy of Holies. The reason why Jesus is a perfect high priest for us is simply because he's not empathetic with us, but rather is sympathetic with us. He takes pity upon us. He loves us even while we were still sinners. Christ loved us with such great sympathy that he died for us. But Christ's sympathy is not based merely upon pity. There's more to it than that. His heart can resonate with ours in the midst of temptation because he endured the same temptations that we have and yet didn't sin. He knows what the feeling of temptation is. But in addition, he knows what the feeling of shame is because he died on the cross, because he died on a tree of shame and of cursing. He experienced the shame that we're all afraid of. He was the one who was mocked. He was the one who became the laughingstock. He was the one who got spit on. He was the one who got his head bashed in. The one that constantly everyone was shaming, pointing out, saying, obviously he must have sinned in some way. He can endure that because of his perfect nature. But he can empathize, sympathize with us because of taking on our shame. But in addition to that, he can sympathize with us in our sin in this way because when he died on the cross, he became the man of sin. Our sin was placed upon him so he knows what sin feels like precisely because our sin was born on his shoulders. He knows what God's anger feels like against sinners because he endured it in his own body. Christ took all of that. He knows the shame. He knows the sin. He knows the temptation. He can resonate with us simply because he has experienced something of it, yet not having sinned himself. You can't get any closer to a sinner than the way he has. And because of that, he's eager to help someone in the midst of their sin. Look at every single example in Scripture in the New Testament. When you see Jesus walking on earth and you hear people crying out for mercy, he never denies them. Never. Matthew chapter 20, verse 30, the two men are crying out, blind men, Lord, have mercy upon us. Son of David, have mercy upon us. And, of course, the crowd's not sympathetic at all. They're like, shut up. 
He's not got time for you. The disciples like trying to push them away so that Jesus could continue to go on his way into the city of Jerusalem. But Jesus stops. He immediately has mercy upon them. What about the ten lepers? The ten lepers all stood at a distance far away from Jesus because they know that they can't get anywhere near him or anywhere near anyone else. And they say, Master, have mercy upon us. He immediately grants them mercy. He tells them, go show yourself to the priest. Why? Because the priest is the one who has to declare that he's now officially clean and can go amongst the society members, but not because the priest can do anything for them. The priest can't heal lepers. Jesus, the great high priest, the Son of God with all the power, all the authority of the Father, is not afraid of a leper touching him. Because when he touches the leper, his purity overwhelms their impurities. His life overwhelms the stink of death and can grant them what they need. The same way Jesus granted mercy to tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and adulterers and every other sin that you can think of, he always was a sympathetic high priest for those who cried out for mercy. Always. There's not a single instance in which someone did not receive his mercy when they cried out for it. But here's the rub. Someone has to cry out for mercy. He heals the sick. He helps those who need mercy. He ministers to people who are needy. I was asking the kids today in the class, like, does anybody like to be known as a needy person? No. But to receive the mercy of Christ as our high priest, you have to understand, you are a needy person. A needy person implies that you cannot help yourself. Anyone who cries out for mercy, an object of mercy, by nature is saying, I can't do anything. I need you to do this. Please, I'm begging you. I'm pleading with you. Have mercy upon me. Have you ever been in that situation? Hopefully not in a financial situation. Hopefully not in other situations. But when it comes to your sin, there's nothing that you can do. You cannot save yourself. You cannot help yourself. You cannot overcome your sin. You have to come as a needy person who acknowledges their sin and says, help me. Have mercy upon me, O oh Lord. Help me. Luke 18. Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. They both go to the temple to pray. Jesus said, the Pharisee prayed this way. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. <laughs> extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector over there who was standing farther back. He said, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Was that man looking for mercy? He didn't want mercy. He was justifying himself, boasting of his own righteousness. The tax collector, on the other hand, 
standing much farther off in the temple, not looking at the Pharisee or anyone else, has his eyes up to heaven. Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. No, pay careful attention between the definite article and the indefinite article. He doesn't say, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Have mercy upon me, the sinner. I am the sinner in this room. Have mercy upon me. And he says, that day, that man went justified back to his home, whereas the Pharisee still remained in his sin, even though the sin of the tax collector was greater. He didn't acknowledge his need for mercy. The difference between that parable and the rest of uh, the theology and the, the history that has passed since then with Christ now seated at the right hand of God, no sinner doesn't matter how great your sin is, no matter how long you've sinned, no matter how big your sin is, you don't have to stand this far away. You have immediate access to God through the righteousness of Christ, through the sympathies of Christ, through the greatness of Christ as he saves sinners. Therefore, the author of Hebrews says it this way, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Is this your time of need? Do you need mercy? Christ promises to give it to you. Cry out to him. He freely grants it to all who call upon his name. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, for loving the world in such a manner. That you would send him to enter into our flesh, to enter into our lives, to condescend to the lowest of low, to hang out with sinners. To show us his glory. To show us your glory. Oh, Father, we pray that you would help us to cling to that great high priest by faith, not looking to any other man, not looking to ourselves. When the finger is pointed, oh, Lord, let that finger be pointed to Christ and let it immediately fall to the side. Because Jesus Christ, our advocate, is Jesus Christ, the righteous, who has died for me. Lord, help us to believe that, help us to live in light of that, and help us to show that glory through our lives to point to the righteous Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray.